start. And um, I'm going to uh, I'm going to share my screen right away just to show you uh, just to speak a little bit about where we were. We finished. I mentioned that we were not taking an approach to Sefer Yirmiyahu that we were just going to read through all of the book uh, according to its order and simply translate or uh, talk about the the greater literary themes. Perhaps um, I am recording um, the. Uh, the, uh, we're not going to be focusing on that, um, but rather what I wanted to do is, is do more of a sugya model, um, almost, like a, almost like Gemara, to take a look at some of the central themes, uh, which of course in the book of Yermia are interspersed in a, in, in a manner that is not strictly chronological, um, that the prophet chose to focus on, and in doing so, um, bringing out the, the, the major themes of the book, and hopefully that will encourage people um, to read Sefer Yirmiya on their own and to, and, and to do that al Haseder. So the last, the last topic that we discussed was Yirmiyahu's mission uh, to join together the northern and southern kingdoms to call for the reunification of Yehuda and Yisrael as a portent, as a harbinger of the Geula, and uh, we ended off on a, a rather sad note, even amidst the fact that we were learning from the Sefer HaNechama in the book of Jeremiah, the comforting prophecies that appear at the end in chapters 30 to 33. Even though we had ended off on a comforting note, it is a sad note because ultimately Yirmiyahu's call for Yehuda and Yisrael to rejoin or to reunify is of course uh, still left unanswered to this very day. What I wanna, what I wanna move to now is to talk about the life of the prophet, the inner life of the prophet. And I think that in the next few classes of this, or for however long we continue learning Sefer Yeremia, I have a mind to uh, switch over to another topic soon, um, but to, to try and bring out what exactly is going through the mind of this prophet and to allow that to relate to how we might be feeling nowadays, um, seeing a world that's in turmoil, seeing a world where it feels like things are falling apart a little bit and the anxiety and the nervousness and of course the sense that we do not have prophets nowadays to guide us or to guide the faithful. We have their words uh, when they were spoken first and of course we talked about the fact that the prophecies that we have and that we learn nowadays are are prophecies that indeed are relevant and applicable in all generations and in all times. So I'm not going to do too much of the explicit work of drawing out what we're talking about to the world that we live in, but I believe that if you are attuned and if you're paying attention to what Yirmiyahu is saying, I think that it becomes quite clear what, what our approach as Ma'aminin, what our approach as uh, believers and those who, who take the word of Hashem and his Torah seriously, what our response should be. Um, my brother asked on, uh, on Twitter yesterday, and, uh, and this is not Sefer Yirmiya, but he said, you know, what's a Pasuk that you turn to? What's a verse that you turn to when you're feeling down or to give you support or to give you a sense um, or to comfort you? And Tanakh is filled with Psukim like that. Uh, some of the Psukim are very difficult ones. And we're going to talk about a Pasuk today that Yirmiyahu Hanavi uh, uttered in the name of B'nai Yisrael, which is one of the most challenging psukim in all of Tanakh. Uh, the Pasuk I said is that when I feel that things are falling apart and that the world that, as we know it is, is changing drastically uh, and, and rather quickly uh, and the anxiety and the nervousness that that brings on, uh, I think of a Pasuk that appears in Tehillim, 
Chavzayin, chapter 27 of Tehillim, in Mikhtabn David, Shamreni Elki Chasisi Bach. It's the very first uh, of the 10 Psalms that Rabbi Nachman of Breslau prescribed for his followers to say on the daily in the Tikkun Klali. David Amelech has a beautiful line. He says, Says that HaKadosh Baruch Hu, I don't want you to allow my soul to descend into the pit and don't allow your pious ones, don't allow the people who care about you, Hashem, the people who, who pay attention to you in this world, don't let us see destruction. Don't let us see chilyon. Don't let us see the world fall into disrepair. And, um, and I think that that's a very powerful way, an entry into uh, what we're going to discuss now, which is the mind of the prophet when the world around him, uh, in Yermia's case, uh, the geopolitical events surrounding the small kingdom of Yehuda from the south, from Mitzrayim, from the north, from Asher, and again from the northeast, uh, from the ascendant Babylonia, which will eventually result in the destruction and, and the utter decimation of the world that the prophet knew. I imagine that Yermiyahu Anavi, in his own way, is uttering these words of David HaMelech, Kilot Azov Shachas. Um, and that's a prayer I think that's relevant for all of us. So I'm going to share the screen and uh, we'll jump right into it. So the inner life of the prophet. Uh, we have a toll order. I'm going to make it a little bit big for everybody to see. So we're actually going to start with a different prophet, with the Navi Tzifanya. The Navi Tzifanya appears in Treyasar. Treyasar is a collection, the 12 minor prophets, as we call them. Nothing minor about being a prophet. Uh, minor in the sense that uh, there's not as much written of their prophecies. Tzifanya is contemporaneous with Yirmiyahu, and uh, Tzifanya is, according to the Malbim, uh, discussing Tzifanya's prophecy. Tzifanya, in the second chapter, there's only three chapters in Sefer Tzifanya. Tzifanya, uh, whose name uh, can be translated as Tzafun Hashem, the hidden one of God, Tzifanya uh, prophesied about Nineveh, which was the capital city of Ashur. And perhaps now that we've discussed Assyria and their role in all of these events, we'll have a better understanding of the mission of Yonah, of the prophet Yonah. Uh, but Tzifanya now turns his attention from Ashur, from Nineveh, to the Jewish people. And the Malbim explains that Tzifanya is talking at a time, and he's being far more blunt than Yirmiyahu Hanavi, who spends so much more time, Sifania is talking about a time that really hope seems to be dying out. There was hope in the days of Yechizkiyahu HaMelech and in his reforms, and that was all but snuffed out by his son Menashe and his son Ammon. And we saw a glimmer of hope again with, the, with King Yoshiyahu and his reforms. And what Sifania is gesturing to is that hope does indeed seem to be running out for the Jewish people. And he says to them the following, the English here is, Woe to her that is filthy and polluted to the oppressing city. Now, I'm going to leave the translation, the oppressing city, on the side, but I will say that almost every word in this first Pasuk is interpreted variously as being a double entendre. So you could translate it like this, the filthy and polluted from the word gi'ul, which is with an ayin in modern Hebrew, but, uh, but goal nefesh, right? Which is a modern Hebrew phase for something that is totally disgusting, goal nefesh. So that could be a reference to Yerushalayim that's filthy and polluted. Ha'ir ha'yona, it's not referring to the prophet Yonah, 
But Yonah, one of the uh, Mepharshim, I believe the Ibn Ezra says, from the word titayavein, from deep mud, a deep uh, mire that they've been stuck in. And, uh, and another way to read it, the double entendre, as other Mepharshim say, morah, from the word aw, and nigala, from the word of geula, ha'ir ha'yonah, the city of the dove. The dove was the flag of Ashur, the flag of the Assyrians, who, of course, did not manage to destroy Yerushalayim in the days of Yechizkiyahu HaMelech and were turned away. So this Pasuk could be interpreted both in the worst way and in the best possible way. Lo shama bekol lo lakhamusar bahashem. You haven't listened. There have been prophets. It's been 80 years since Yeshayahu. It's, but you didn't listen to the prophets. You didn't listen to Yermiyahu. You didn't take Musar. Musar over here doesn't just mean moral exhortation, but Musar over here comes from the word Yisurin, from the sufferings that have been visited upon you, and you didn't listen. Lo batcha elelokeha, lo kareva. You didn't draw near to God. You didn't do tshuva. Sareha bikirba. And he compares the leaders, the princes, and the judges like wolves and lions, that they're acting like animals, self-interest, uh, a dog-eat-dog kind of world that leads to this sense of destruction. Like we talked about on Shabbos a little bit, the sense that uh, I think is an- the antithesis of the religious approach to life. The secular approach says... And the nihilistic approach says that everyone is out there for themselves. You got to get yours. And if you don't get yours, someone else is going to take it. And when you live in a society which is so uh, competitive like that, in the worst possible way, this sense that everyone is nichva, michupaso shalaacher, that everyone is losing out from someone else. So that's a recipe. For when everybody feels that their interests are competing against other people's interests and are unable to see other people's interests, that's animalistic. That's not, that's not what human beings are called to be. That's not what we're called to rise up to. And indeed, that is the likening over here, uh, the, the metaphor for the leaders in Yushalayim, for those who are supposed to be the beacons of hope and the beacons of morality as being people that are acting like animals. And then he says, Nivieha pochazim, anshe bogdos kodesh chamsu Torah. And we'll see that Sefania and Yirmiyahu mirror each other over here in calling out the false prophets. The false prophets indeed are going to be a thorn in the side of Yirmiyahu for the duration of his career, that Yirmiyahu is going to contend with people who are soothsayers, people who are going to tell you, we're doing great, the stock market is up, right? Where it's an unrivaled time of prosperity. This is the best it's ever been. How come you're not saying thank you for this? And, 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 and these prophets who are going to be saying they exist in the times of Menashe as well, right? I said that it was 80 years since the prophecies of, Yo- of Yeshayahu in the days of Chizkiyahu HaMelech, but there had been prophets or people that called themselves prophets all throughout the career and reign of Menashe, telling everybody, oh, things are great. We're not, no, there's no armies amassing. Asher has turned away. The northern kingdom is destroyed. We don't have to worry. It's all good as long as we pay fealty to the people that could wipe us out, should they be so inclined to. And he calls them these wanton and treacherous persons on Sheikh Bogdot, the traitors. Kodesh and the priests have, uh, the people who are looked to, to be the leaders, the spiritual leaders, 
So there's nothing to look at over there. They're immoral. They're, they're, they're out in self-interest. And this is the, the Yerushalayim that Tzifanya is calling out to. This is Yerushalayim that Tzifanya is addressing. And these psukim, pay close attention to them, these psukim directly mirror something that Yirmiyahu says, almost identical in the thrust of the words of the Prophet. In the second chapter of Sefer Yirmiyah, he also gives an assessment to the leaders in his time. And the reason I'm pointing this out to you is to, is to really bring into relief and to highlight what the Navi was up against. What is that lonely man of faith? What is that lonely person who's hearing the word of God, who still believes in morality, who still believes in the better angels of our nature? What kind of leaders is, is this Navi up against? And we're going to see that it, as Sefer Yermia progresses, uh, it's not just that he's up against them, but they decide to be up against him, that the message of Yermia is so subversive to their cause, is so against and antithetical to what they stand for, that, that, that they decide that Yermiyahu has to die for his, uh, for his words, that they decide that he, he, cannot, he cannot continue. Alan, did you have a question? Oh, okay, I thought that... But that was a question. Okay, so Yirmiyahu echoes the words of Tsefania, um almost identically. He says like this, and they had the same concern. Hakohanim says Yirmiyahu lo amru Hashem. Lo Kohanim did not ask where is Hashem. Now I think that that's such a fascinating uh, thing to call them out on, right? You don't say where is Hashem, but I also think that in a poetic way that this is the calling of every Jew. Every Jew at every point that they are in their lives, should be able to turn, especially in difficult times, and say, Ayeka, where is Hashem? Aye Hashem. And, and that Ayeka, by the way, actually becomes the first word of Yermiyahu's Megillah, Eicha, the same idea. Hakoanim lo amru Aye Hashem, v'tov se ha-Torah, and the Torah leaders, lo yedauni, they knew me not. V'haroim, pashubi, and the shepherds, the leaders of the people, their princes, they sinned against me. And the prophets, these false prophets, so they were just as comfortable prophesying where they might as well have been prophesying for the Baal. That's how false and how wrong and how off their prophecies were. And they followed Gods that don't help. They followed gods and they followed solutions that were useless. It's almost they refused to take the more difficult road of self-repair and they were comfortable just soothsaying and saying things will be fine and everything is fine and this is fine. There's like a popular internet meme where a cartoon character sits in a, in a room surrounded by flames and has a very vacant expression on, on his face and he says, this is fine. Right? This is fine right here. The building's on fire. Everything is burning around me, but I'm fine. By the way, this is a, 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 a phrase that comes up again in the, in the prophets. I wish I knew exactly where it was, but in Tanakh we have a line, Shalom Li, right? That a person will say, in Torah also, right? I'll just go on my, own, on my own self. So long as I'm fine, Shalom Li, as long as all is good for me, then, then I don't have to worry. That's what these prophets were telling the people. And God says, 
I'm going to still plead or, or contend with you. And I will contend with your children's children the call to do tshuva, the call for these people, these entrenched elites who have so been, uh, who are so amoral at this point, who are so responsible for the ir mora'av and igalaha, ir hayona, for the, the decimation of Yerushalayim, the emptying out of all that it was. So God says, we'll continue to contend. The prophets will still call out for them. So I want to spend a moment uh, trying to understand what Yirmiyahu is saying over here. So the first thing that I put in my footnotes, and the footnotes over here, I know that they're small. Footnotes are really, uh, these are my notes as I prepare these shiurim. And I've told you I've been looking uh, throughout most of the classic commentaries. And we find very fascinating readings over here. Why is Yirmiyahu pointing out the Kohanim? So the first thing is that Yirmiyahu is fearless. He's pointing out those who, he's calling out those who are closest to him. Remember, Yirmiyahu himself is a Kohen and comes from a city of Kohanim in Anatot. The Kohanim's job was to teach Torah to the people. Yoru Aside from their job of of functioning in the Beis HaMikdash and allowing the rituals of the Jewish people to continue, the Kohanim were the people that were supposed to teach the Torah. Now, if the people teaching, who are supposed to teach the Torah, if the arbiters of what the Word of God is are going to be corrupt and immoral, so then we're really bad situation. And also this notion over here, lo yidauni, is going to come up later in a verse that we're going to see towards the end. I hope we'll get to it tonight. Lo yidauni, what does it mean that they didn't know me? So we already know what that means because Yirmiyahu himself uses that word in the positive valence, in the positive sense as well. If you take a look later on in Sefer Yirmiyahu, I'm just going to highlight the note that I'm referring to over here. Das Hashem, what does it mean to know God? Right? So these Kohanim, we know that they knew a lot of Torah. We, knew, we know that they probably were very good at performing and discharging the rituals in the Beis HaMikdash. So what does it mean, Das Hashem? in the lexicon of Yirmiyahu Anavi. So Das Hashem, according to Yirmiyahu, appears later on in Chaf Bey's Tezayin. Yirmiyahu says like this, Don din ani ve'evyon aztov halo, halo hi hadasoti ne'um Hashem. God says, you want to know what it means to know me? You want to know what it means to know God? It means dan, dan, dan din ani ve'evyon. Take up the cudgels of judgment, the, the defense of the, of the weak, of the evyon, of the destitute, of those at society's margins. As tov, right? Halohi hadasosi, ne'um Hashem. That is knowledge of God. It's a moral knowledge. It's an inner moral calling. It's an understanding of right and wrong. An understanding of what's good for others is also good for me. And not to just look out like Spania called for the people, these lions and wolves, the leaders that are just toreif, they're just taking whatever they need for them. We find this as well in Perek Tes. Yirmiyahu Anavi also tells us what Das Hashem, what knowledge of Hashem is and what Lo Yudauni, what it means to not know Hashem. Ko Amar Hashem, says Yirmiyahu, The wise should not be praising themselves for their wisdom. And if you're strong and powerful, don't praise yourself for being strong and powerful. And if you are Zoha, if you merit to have wealth, don't praise yourself for that wealth. What should be praiseworthy? Who should praise themselves? And who, sh- who is praiseworthy? Know me, understand this, and know me. 
I am Hashem Osechesed Mishpat Utztaka Ba'aretz these are the words of the prophet. The prophet immediately tells us in two places that this loya de'uni, what does it mean that they don't know me? It doesn't mean that they didn't know Torah. It doesn't mean that they didn't probably perform many mitzvot also. They were all good with ritual. What is Das Hashem? Das Hashem, Haskil v'yadoa. To know God is to know what loving kindness is, what chesed is, what justice is. What stucco, what charity is. This is what God wants. So that's the notion that Yirmiyahu is trying to draw out and to say that these people who he's speaking to over here, the Kohanim, Tosei Torah, the Roim, the Nevi'im, these four elite characters, these four elite castes of people, so this is what they don't know. They don't know God. Uh, Rabbi Lau points out in his uh, Sefer, in a footnote, he, he quotes Noga Haruveni. Uh, Noga Haruveni used to run the Neot Kidumim site. He was also a Bible scholar and wrote a book, a very influential book and study of Sefer Yermia. It's only in, uh, in Hebrew, but it's quoted at length by, uh, it's quoted throughout by Rabbi Lau in his book. He points out that this mushal of the Roim, of the shepherds, appears no less Shepherds and their flock, that mushal, that, that parable, that metaphor appears no less than 30 times in the book of Yermia. And part of that might also owe to Yermia, whose own story that Anatot was a land of shepherds and a land in those mountains, still to this very day, actually, a land of shepherds. And so Yermia, who is utilizing a very, a very pregnant and a very uh, available metaphor with which to talk about the leaders. So that's Yirmiyahu and Sfanya calling out the people that are essentially standing in the way of their mission. And I, I, th- I, believe, I believe that Yirmiyahu and Sfanya address their words to these leaders because perhaps if the leaders can have some sense talked into them, maybe that could take the followers along that path also. Yirmiyahu continues, and he, and he, he over here, in, towards the end of the second chapter, he turns himself to the people. And the people in the eyes of Yirmiyahu are indeed like a flock that's been led astray. Not exactly fully responsible for their actions, although they will be held to account, but confused, torn between a turbulent reality around them, different sides, different things that they agree with and don't agree with, and, and there's a, a confusion that I think within that confusion engenders their sinful responses. Yirmiyahu says to them, Vata malach, to the Jewish people, what's it going to be? L'derech Mitzrayim lishtos meishichor? Are you going to go down to Mitzrayim to drink the waters of the Nile? Umalach l'derech Ashur lishtos meinahar? Or are you going to go up to the Euphrates to drink the waters of Assyria? Meaning, this flock, where are you going to be led to? And look who you're going to be torn between. Are you going to pay fealty to Egypt, which is on its way off the geopolitical stage? Are you going to try and uh, hitch, your sa- are you hitch your saddle or hitch your cart? Are you going to hitch it to Assyria and think that maybe they will save you and they're going to provide you with safety and protection? Who's it going to be? Tiasreich ra'aseich umeshuvasaich tochichuch ud'iur'i very difficult pasuk to read, quite beautiful. Um, what he's saying, and I think continuing this metaphor of shepherds and their flocks, he says, 
your own wickedness is eventually going to show you what path you've been led down and your own sins, right? Your own sins, you're only going to be able to blame yourself for the path that you go down. But when you go down to find these waters, right? So, we know from David HaMelech, we talked about in our Tehillim Shirim, the double entendre uh, or the double meaning of the staff of the shepherd to rest upon and also the staff of the shepherd to hit the flock and to send the flock in the proper directions. Wherever you go, you're going to find that those waters that you're drinking from are ra vimar, the bad and bitter. And that, that water that you're drinking from is the water, the water of leaving the word of Hashem. Right? You're going to end up, you're going to leave Hashem, you're going to follow down the, that path, whoever you want to hitch your horse to, and, and you're going to find that eventually all it leads you to is bitter and muddy and murky waters that will not slake whatever thirst you have, and you have forsaken your God, and you no longer fear God. Right? There's, you, you've decided to go off on your own, and it leads only to bitterness. God says, I've been with you for so long. I have broken every yoke upon you. I redeemed you from slavery. I have been with you from the very beginning. This is we saw was also that Hashem was referring to Ephraim, having Yakirli Ephraim, Yelit Shashun, referring to our youth. God also now in in a, in a reproving voice, tells us about our long relationship and how, and how that's meaningless, how, how that, that is not something that the people are, are, are finding any sort of comfort in, and they're being led astray. And he uses, again, this notion of playing the harlot, that we're following, we're, we're distracted, we're following every cheap answer that we think might, uh, might satisfy our desire for protection, our desire for, for being enveloped in some sort of embrace, and it's not God, because we no longer fear God. This uh, particular chapter finishes off, God says, for though thou, I didn't put the Hebrew here, but I, I did it for a reason, and maybe you could tell me why. For though thou wash thee with nitre, and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, said the Lord God. Right? You try and wash your hands of your sins, and you use a lot of soap to do so, but your iniquity, your sin is still there. You can't run. Why do, does this remind anybody of anything in, in literature? Does this remind anybody? Because I read this and I immediately thought back to my English literature classes. Anybody know who I'm referring to? So Lady Macbeth. Lady, Lady Macbeth, after, after she and her husband hatched the plan, uh, spoiler alert if you haven't read Macbeth, but... Um, but Lady Macbeth, after they hatched the plot to, uh, to kill King Duncan, and he, and he dies, and, he, and, he's, and he's killed. Um, so Lady Macbeth is sleepwalking, and she's consumed with feelings of guilt. And she says those famous words, those immortal words, out, out, you damn spot, right? That is, I believe, I don't know, uh, I'm not a Shakespeare scholar, but I believe that the, that the macor for that is probably coming from Sefer Yermia. God says, you will try Right, it's almost telling you you're going. It's like what you say to a child: you're going to regret this. You're going to regret you're being led astray. It's going to lead you to nothing. It's going to lead you to bitter waters, and you're going to try and wash your hands of that iniquity, and it's not going to work. That spot of your sin and your guilt that's going to stay. That Jewish guilt will be something that will be forever ingrained upon your consciousness. The knowledge 
that you left a good protection and that you left a good thing because you went after your own desires of your heart and it led to nothingness. So that is how Yirmiyah is contending. Yirmiyah was contending, as we saw earlier, with the leaders and then turns himself to the people. The people are spared a little bit of the opprobrium that he has, the invective that he has for the leaders, and they're seen as a wayward flock. They're seen as a lost flock. Okay. So Yirmiyahu later on in chapter 10 now says that the people, the people are, the people are going down a terrible road. Their main sin is idolatry. And Yirmiyahu is trying as much as possible. Now, what I, maybe to introduce this a little bit, because it's so hard for us to understand. What exactly was the pull of idolatry? What exactly was so difficult about idolatry to get rid of? Why was it the Achilles heel for everything that the Jewish people faced, for all of their sins in Eretz Yisrael? Why, why was this so pernicious? Why was it so persistent? And you have to imagine that for, and Yirmiyahu wasn't the only one, but for a prophet who's trying to reprove the people for this sin, you have to imagine the torment, the torment when you see people doing something so stupid, so useless, so meaningless, that's taking them nowhere. You have to imagine the inner torment, masas libo, of the Navi when he's talking to the people like that and telling them, this is eitzim va'avanim. These are sticks and stones. Now, obviously, it's not that simple, right? The people weren't stupid. It's more of a sense of two reasons. One is that hitching themselves to the idols of the other nations was, in a sense, a kind of self-protection. If I were maybe a little bit more of like a firebrand, I would say they're hitching themselves to their culture, thinking that assimilating themselves into these oppressors' culture is going to be the thing that saves them. But I think that there's also a, a more a deeper spiritual reason behind it. And, and we don't have time to really go through this. Rav Kook has essays talking in Malach HaIdiot B'Yisrael, uh, in Rav Kook's essay in Arot, talking about his historiography of Jewish people, that idolatry was a sense that fundamentally people wanted not, uh, people wanted a mediated experience of the divine. That Judaism offers an unmediated relationship and experience with the divine. And that the people who serve Avodah Zarah for whatever it is, and Avodah Zarah here we're talking about writ large, the notion that my relationship with God must be mediated through something else. I, I am not able to withstand a direct connection with the divine, and thereby I'm going to serve or I'm going to attach myself towards divine intermediaries. Usually that's going to be something in the natural world, right? That's why the, in Talmudic parlance for... Um, at least in, in most manuscripts of the Gemara, the Talmudic parlance for a pagan is ovde kochavim umazalos, that they're people who are attaching themselves to, uh, to an added layer or many layers between themselves and God. And Judaism says absolutely not. Right from the very beginning, get out of the horoscopes and prognostications and, and forecasting based on the natural world and, and these powers that are visible and tangible and allow yourself to be tossed into the void of a God that is intangible, a God that is not manifestly present in a physical sense. And that's a hard thing to do. That's a hard faith to have. And the people are stuck with it. And it might seem silly to us that the prophet harps on this and continues to talk about this and the torment that Yirmiyahu must have been going through in talking to people about the foolishness of their ways. So let's take a look at what he says to them over here. 
right? Not just that they're following, like he described earlier, um, the geopolitical whims and attaching themselves to the powerful nations, but also to their gods. Koamar Hashem. This is what God said. Do not learn from the way of the nations. Don't be, don't look at the signs of the heaven. So the nations are dismayed at them. The Gemara tells us over here that, that there were very powerful omens that people would see. The Torah tells us we're not allowed to turn to portents and to omens. Uh, you know, if you see a black cat, that's just a black cat. It doesn't mean anything more than that. If we uh, see in the times of Yirmiyahu Hanavi, a solar eclipse, or if we see a lunar eclipse, or if we see the celestial bodies acting in a certain way uh, based on their configurations, ultimately that's meaningless. That has no message for us. The customs and the laws and the way in which they conduct their faith, that's hevel, it's emptiness, it's vanity. Right? It's a tree that, a, that someone cuts out of the forest. These are, these are tangible and ultimately meaningless objects. This gold and silver that you could work into your coins and into your idols, it doesn't talk to you. It has nothing to say to you. And Yirmiyahu is so committed to this talk, is so committed to the people that he actually turns to speak in the vernacular. He speaks in Aramaic over here. One of the very few psukim uh, outside of Sefer Daniel in its entirety, one of the very few psukim that's actually written in Aramaic. And Yermia is talking now in the vernacular people. Kidna ta'amrun lahom alachaya di shamaya va'arkalo avdu ye'avdu me'arum intchos shamaya eila. Yermiao says to them, these gods that you're turning to, they didn't make heavens and earth. Turn yourself to the God that made the heavens and earth. Look to the primary cause. Look to the primary mover. Look to the God above all other gods. These gods that didn't make Shamaya the Arkalo Avdu, they didn't make heaven and earth. They will be eventually lost. They'll eventually be sitting in the, muse- the Metropolitan Museum of Art for people to look at and to say, oh, well, an idol, it's quite beautiful, but that's their gods. That has nothing, that's not our portion. If you, um, if you take a look at Rashi, Rashi and the Radak say that this actually, the Aramaic over here was, uh, I'm, in the interest of time, I'll say it outside, Rashi and Radak say that the Aramaic over here is actually text from a letter that Yirmiyahu Hanavi sent to the Jews that were already in the Golan that there already had been a large portion of the population that had been exiled and, ha- and were already in the north in Ashur or had been exiled with Melech Yehoyachin to Bavel earlier. So this is actually a message to them, almost like what we say in Pirkei Avos, Dama Shetashiv La'apikoris, that you should know what to answer to a heretic. What Yirmiyahu senses is that their oppressors and their captors in exile are going to try and turn them towards the gods of the Babylonians. Yermiel says, this is what you should tell them. You should say in Aramaic to them, I will not follow the gods that didn't create the heaven and earth. I'm a Jew. My God is the supreme God above all gods who made and who, will, who made heaven and earth, who will last long after those gods are gone and, and perish from the face of the earth. 
That's a letter. This is text apparently from a letter, and that maybe perhaps explains the digression into Aramaic. That's the text of the letter that he sent to them. Right? They're going to be gone, and this is what you should respond to the Babylonians that are going to try and convert you. This is not the portion of us. This is not our portion. We are unique. This is, we have our own faith. Our God is the creator of all. The Israel Shevet Nachlato, and the Jewish people are his portion, Hashem Tzvakos Shemo, the Lord of the hosts. So this is maybe perhaps an important source for the idea of, of the election of Israel, the chosenness, the sense that that not not necessarily excluding others, not calling the Babylonians to believe in our God. But the notion that we should not be called to their gods, we have our own portion, we have our own calling, that is where our fealty is. Yirmiya continues, he says, Kol shimua hine ba'a v'ra'ash gadomi eretz tzafon lasum et mama ma'on tanim. We're going to end with this Pasuk today because there's so much more going on over here. And when I talked about the most difficult Pasuk, of course, if I mentioned something in the beginning of the year, we don't always get to it in the year. Uh, so Mir Tzashen, the next time we meet, we'll talk about this Pasuk, which might seem very familiar to you from the Haggadah Shal Pesach. It actually doesn't come from here. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's talk for a second about where, where, what, Yehud, what Yirmiyahu says now. He says, I hear a Shmua. Shmua in modern Hebrew is a rumor. There's a rumor going on now. And there's a rash gadomi aretz tzafon. There's a great noise coming from the north. And that noise, the meaning of that noise, is that the cities of Yehuda, we don't know exactly who's making that noise or what's happening, but we know that it ends. Yermiah is telling them, I know that it ends with the destruction of our cities of Yehuda. Me'on tanim, and we'll make it a, a, a desolate place dwelling place of jackals, the jackals that Rabbi Akiva and the Tanaim will eventually see after the destruction of the second Beis HaMikdash. So what's this Shmua over here? Let's take a look. The Radak says that Kol Shmua HaKol Sha'anachnu Shom'im V'Rash Kadol. I love that the Navi uses the words Shmua, a rumor, a voice, because Yirmiyahu HaNavi understands exactly what's going on. He understands exactly what that noise, what the rumors from the north are. Remember, they don't have Twitter or they don't have, you know, New York Times alerts on their phone to find out exactly what the news is every five minutes. But you have a sense that there's some impending doom. As Yermiyahu told us in his very first prophecy, there's some impending doom coming from the north. I would aver that the average person didn't know what to make of it. In the same way that us nowadays, us moderns, even with the overload of news we have, we don't always know what to make of the news. We don't always know how to synthesize and understand it, to cut through all the confusion. Like I told you before, and I think the, the beautiful turn of phrase from, uh, from Dr. Yoram Hazoni, that a prophet doesn't just tell the future, really isn't, isn't, his job is not to tell the future. Her job is not to tell the future. And the prophet's job is to tell the present and to understand the events going on in a confusing world around them. Yirmiyahu understands that the noise that is coming from the north means eventually the destruction of Yudah. And that's what he's calling out to the people in Aramaic, in their vernacular, in the beginning of their, of their geopolitical leanings, of who they're, trying to, uh, who they're trying to follow to find protection, or the idols that they're trying to follow uh, to find some sort of spiritual protection or spiritual comfort. 
Yirmiyahu says this rumor that you hear, right? The, the, the unease you feel right now, the sense of displacement, the thing that's gnawing in the back of your head, that is actually going, that is the sound. That is the, is the, is the footsteps. They're far away right now, but that's the footsteps that results in the desolation of your cities. That's what's happening. The Radak says, very beautifully, he says, These scary rumors that we're hearing, these reports that are coming down, that are coming from the north, This is the sound of Nebuchadnezzar and his armies on the march in the north. It's the sound of the footsteps of their soldiers, their legions and their chariots. At this particular point, we don't know what direction Nebuchadnezzar is going to be going in. What we're going to end with now is we're at a, we're at a crossroads. The armies of Nebuchadnezzar are on a march. Yirmiyahu Hanavi knows what the march of, of Nebuchadnezzar's armies results in. He knows where they're going to. The people aren't sure yet, and you can imagine that there's some people saying that no, Nebuchadnezzar is going to assert control over the last bastions of Assyrian resistance. Maybe he's going to head to the north. Maybe he's going to head to Amon, to one of the other tribes, to the marauding, pillaging tribes in the area. But he's not going to come in our direction. He's not going to come down to Yerushalayim. Nebuchadnezzar has bigger fish to fry than little old Yehuda. This is what some people might be still comforting themselves with those rumors, still saying, I don't need to take any decisive action. I don't need to do anything different. I could continue with the way of life. The leaders can continue with the way that they're running things. It will all be okay. What Yirmiyahu is saying directly to these people is actually all is not okay. That sound you hear in the north, it's not stopping anywhere else. It's on the march and the march is going to end in the desolation of our cities and to us. And Yirmiyahu, we're gonna see in the wake of that realization, the wake of what he's telling the people is going to issue a very powerful call to God to intercede and to have one final step on behalf of his children, one final act of mercy, perhaps will save Yerushalayim the same way that it was saved in the days of Yechizkiyahu HaMelech when the armies of Usher turned back. And next week, Emir Hashem, um, I hope next week, um, but the next time that we learn, um, we will, we will see exactly what Yirmiyahu continues to say in the wake of this realization. So we're going to, uh, we're going to stop 